This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to EM Basic Essential Evidence. Today we're going to talk about the study behind what most people call either the PCARN head CT rule or the Cooperman head CT rule. This clinical decision rule helps us avoid CT scanning in pediatric patients who sustain minor head trauma. It helps us save the patient from an unnecessary head CT and its radiation, so we should be using this rule as much as possible. So let's get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. The title of this article is Identification of Children at Very Low Risk of Clinically Important Brain Injuries After Head Trauma, a Prospective Cohort Study. The study was published in The Lancet, October 3, 2009, and the first author is Nathan Cooperman. If you go to embasa.org, there's a link for free full-text access to this article. This study was conducted by the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, also called PACARN. This is a network of 21 hospitals that is pulling their data together to answer some basic questions in pediatric emergency medicine. The goal of this study was to create a clinical decision rule that could help clinicians avoid getting head CTs in children with minor head trauma. The study had two parts, a derivation group and a validation group. In the derivation group, the study collected a whole bunch of clinical data points on 8,500 children with minor head trauma. These data points included such variables as whether there was a loss of consciousness or a headache. These data points were recorded in the ED during regular patient care. The study did not interfere with the decision whether or not to get a head CT. That was left up to the attending physician. The children in the study were then followed to see which patients had a clinically significant head injury, which we'll talk about in a minute. The authors were able to follow up 78% of patients by phone to make sure they were okay, and they looked at death certificates and medical records to catch the patients they missed. Even though follow-up was not 100%, do you really think anyone in the U.S. would not let a hospital know if their child was seen in the ED and then discharged only to die of a head bleed? Yeah, that's not very likely. After the researchers had all this data, they fed it into a computer program, which was able to derive a rule that was the most sensitive for detecting clinically significant head injury. This represented the derivation part of the study. At this point, if you found a decision rule that had high sensitivity, wouldn't you be done? Not quite. The reason why is that you have now established a rule that worked for that particular population. How do you know that it will work for another population? If you fed enough variables into the computer and made a decision rule big enough, you could find one that detects all injuries in that one population, but that doesn't mean that it would work outside of that population. The next step is to do a validation study where you apply this new rule to a new population of patients with minor head trauma and see how it does in real-life clinical practice. So let's briefly talk about what we mean by clinically significant head injury. Let's start this off with an example. Let's say that I did a study of a blood pressure medication in 5,000 patients, and I find that it reduces their blood pressure by 1 millimeter of mercury, and that this finding is statistically significant. However, who the heck cares clinically about a lousy millimeter of mercury when it comes to blood pressure? The answer is no one, which is why you need to always ask yourself, If the results of the study are statistically significant, should I care about this outcome in real life? In this study, the authors were looking for clinically significant head injuries. 
If you listen to the second EM Basic Essential Evidence podcast, we talked about clinically significant intracranial bleeding in adult patients on warfarin or coumadin. There is a big difference between a little bit of blood on your head CT and needing to go to neurosurgery. The concern with pediatric head CTs is that while you may find a little bit of blood, if you never have to do anything about it, should we even find it in the first place? If you find that blood, then you're likely to get admitted and possibly get another head CT and then discharge with a clean bill of health without needing surgery. If you never did that head CT in the first place, you would have never found the blood to begin with and would have saved the child an admission and more importantly, a second head CT. This is what we mean by clinically significant head injuries. To use my favorite internet YouTube video, Honey Badger don't care about blood in your head. Honey Badger does care about needing surgery for that blood inside your head. Thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week. And if you don't know what I mean by the Honey Badger, check it out on YouTube. But fair warning, it's got some language that may not be safe for work or for little ears. So to get back to the issue at hand, the study authors defined a clinically significant head injury as death from TBI, neurosurgery, intubation for more than 24 hours, or admission for two nights or more. The reason intubation for more than 24 hours was included was that the authors wanted to exclude patients who only needed to be intubated to get imaging, and the reason for the two nights of admission was that they wanted to exclude patients placed on overnight observation. The thinking on the two-night rule is that you really must have had a decent knock to your head if you needed to stay for two nights or longer, since most of these patients are only observed for 6 to 24 hours. Now let's talk about how to actually apply the PCARN head CT rule. In order to apply this rule, you need to have a patient with a GCS of 15, which means that you are totally awake and alert and not confused. Just like the Nexus rule, this rule is not for that major trauma patient who is intubated after a rollover MVC. This is for the vast majority of kids that we see who have a minor head injury, but who are awake and acting normally or almost normally. There are different criteria for patients under 2 years old and patients over 2 years old. For patients under 2 years old, if the GCS is 14 or less, or there is a signs of a palpable skull fracture, then they should get a head CT because their risk of clinically significant head injury was 4.4%. If you didn't have those two findings, then you could move on to the next step. If you had a scalp hematoma, except for a forehead hematoma, a loss of consciousness more than 5 seconds, had a severe mechanism of injury, or you were not acting right according to your parent, then you had a risk of clinically significant head injury of 0.9%. If you were over 3 months old, you could be either observed in the ED or as an inpatient, or you could go directly to CT depending on provider and parent comfort and preference. However, if the patient is negative for all five things, then they have less than a 0.02% risk of clinically significant head injury. Now that's a lot to remember. The article has an excellent flow chart to help you sort this out. You can also find this rule on just about any medical app or website out there. For the over two-year-old group, the rules are almost the same. The first question is whether the GCS was 14 or lower, or are there signs of a basal skull fracture, like hemotympanum, bruising behind the ears, also known as battle sign, or CSF leaking from the ears. If the patient is positive for one of those two findings, then just like the under two group, these patients have a risk of 4.3% 
of clinically significant head injury and should get a head CT. If these are a no, then ask if there is a history of LOC, vomiting, a severe mechanism of injury, or a severe headache. If yes to any of those, then once again, you have a risk of 0.9% for clinically significant head injury. If all of those criteria are no, then your risk is less than 0.05%. Now what is meant by severe mechanism? This is not just a little head bonk. A severe mechanism means an MVC with ejection, an MVC with the death of a number of their passenger, a rollover, a pedestrian or unhelmeted bicyclist struck by a car, falls more than three feet for under two years old, or more than five feet for over two years old, or being struck in the head by a high-impact object like a bat. While the rollover MVC or pedestrian struck is kind of a no-dust situation, make sure that the height of the fall doesn't violate the rule. However, keep in mind that a severe mechanism injury alone doesn't equal head CT. It means a rate of clinically significant head injury of just about 1%. You can take your own comfort with kids into account and have a frank discussion with the parents about this risk and make a decision from there. In the days before head CTs were available in every ED, the standard thing to do was to observe these kids for six hours in the ED and send them home with good return precautions. So if you have a child that falls into that 0.9% risk group, then you can always elect to observe them either in the ED or in the hospital to avoid that head CT if you feel okay doing that. So what about the overall sensitivity of the rule? In patients under two years old, the rule was 100% sensitive for clinically significant head injury, although there were only 25 patients who had a clinically significant head injury in this age group. In the over two age group, the rule had a sensitivity of 96.8%. So these are pretty good numbers for sensitivity. Here's the final great thing about the PCARN head CT rule. Even if you think that 0.9% or 0.02% is not an acceptable miss rate, consider this. In the validation population, when they were testing the rule, they didn't miss any child that died or needed neurosurgery. So while there were patients who needed to be intubated for more than 24 hours, or admitted for two nights or longer, none of the patients needed surgery and none died. In the end, neurosurgery and death are the two outcomes we are most worried about, and the Picard Head CT rule picked up all of those cases. So let's wrap this up. The bottom line is that you should strive to use the PCARN Head CT rule in your everyday practice because it works and it will save your little patients from a lot of radiation to their brain. While I am not a big doomsday sayer in regards to the harm of medical radiation like some people are, I think we can all agree that less radiation is better in regards to the patient, overall healthcare costs, and time spent in the ED. So try your best to use this rule when you can to do the right thing for the patient first and foremost. Now applying this rule in everyday practice can take some finesse in regards to talking with parents, but that is a discussion for another episode that I'm planning on really soon, so stay tuned for that. That's all I have for now for the PCARN Head CT Rule. You know the drill. Send me your thoughts via email, Facebook, or Twitter anytime. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic Essential Evidence. You stay classy, podcast listeners.